0: Welcome today to the Someone To Tell It To podcast. We are so glad to have you join us for this vital conversation. Someone To Tell It To believes that everyone is a someone, someone who matters, someone who has a story to tell that can make a difference for the world, to help make it more caring, more compassionate, more kind.
1: Our very special guest is Dr. Tony Campolo we first met tony about five years ago when he came to be the featured speaker at someone to tell it to's annual gathering he charmed the crowd there that night he was funny he was inspirational he shared some tremendous stories he's an excellent storyteller and we we really uh, fell in love with him and his wife peggy and we had the privilege the the next morning after that event of having breakfast with them at the bed and breakfast that they were staying and we just sat we barely even spoke we sat in rapt attention as tony told story after story to us and even to the uh, the bed and breakfast owners. we remember they stopped the work that they were doing and they sat down and joined us too because they were just again so charmed by his his presence by his words and 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 by his message and so We hope and we know that you will be charmed today too. So we're so glad that you're joining us.
0: Yeah, so just so you as listeners know a little bit about Tony, Tony Campolo is professor of sociology at Eastern University and was formerly on the faculty of the University of Pennsylvania. For 40 years, he founded and led the Evangelical Association for the Promotion of Education an organization that created and supported programs serving needy communities in the third world as well as at-risk neighborhoods across north america more recently dr campolo has provided leadership for the red letter christians movement he blogs regularly at his own website tony and his wife peggy live near philadelphia and have two children and four grandchildren so we hope you enjoy today's episode. Well, hey, Tony, welcome to the program. I feel welcomed. Well, Tony, we know that you're a great storyteller, and we thought what would be fun for our listeners today is if you would start us off by telling a great story.
2: Okay. Uh, well, the, the story that probably will go on long after I'm dead <laughs> is, a, uh, is a story that I uh, tell about an encounter I had in a greasy spoon restaurant in Honolulu. Uh, I was there uh, speaking at a uh, convention and uh, I woke up at 3 o'clock in the morning. That happens when you're out on the uh, uh, East Coast normally and uh, you're out in Hawaii. uh, That's a gigantic time difference, like six hours. So I'm up at 3 in the morning and I'm hungry and I want to get something to eat. I got dressed, but even in a bustling city like Honolulu, You can't find many places that are open. Up a side street, I I found this this little tiny hole-in-the-wall restaurant. I went in. uh, Nobody was in the place. Uh, uh, There was a a row of stools in front of the counter. I sat down. uh, After a few moments, this really rotund guy came out wearing a greasy, dirty apron, uh, smoking a cigar. He pulled the cigar out, put it down, and said, what do you want? I said, I'd, I'd like a cup of coffee and a donut. He poured the coffee, and then he wiped uh, his hand on his greasy uh, apron, and, uh, and he picked up the donut. Oh, I hate it. But uh, so, so there I am, 3.30 in the morning, uh, drinking a cup of coffee and eating this dirty donut when uh, into the place come about eight or nine prostitutes. And they sat on either side of me. And uh, they were noisy. They were boisterous. The one next to me said to her friend, Tomorrow's my birthday. I'm going to be 39. Her friend said, So what do you want me to do? Sing happy birthday? What should we all do here, people? Should we uh, sing happy birthday? Should we have a party here? Shall we bring a birthday cake? The woman said... uh, uh, I, I don't expect anything. And wh- why do you have to talk to me like that? I, I I haven't had a birthday party in my whole life. I don't expect to have one now. Well, that did it. I waited until they left, and then I called Harry over. He was the guy that ran the place, and I said, uh, "Do they come in here every night?" He said, "Yes." I said, "The one right next to me." He said, "Agnes." Uh, she said, uh, "Tomorrow's her birthday." And she's never had a birthday party in her whole life. Harry, what do you say we throw a birthday party for her here in the diner tomorrow night when she comes in? He he looked at me with a smile and said, hey, mister, that's brilliant. That's absolutely brilliant. Called his wife, who did the cooking. Jane, come out of here. This guy wants to throw a birthday party for Agnes. It's her birthday tomorrow. She came out. She grabbed my hand and held it warmly and said, that's lovely. Uh, you know, Agnes is, I, I know you're, what you think, but she's one of the good people in this town. She's always doing for people and nobody ever does for her. This is lovely. I said, can I can I uh, uh, decorate the place? She said, to your heart's content. I said, I'm going to bring a birthday cake. Harry. said, oh, no. The cake's my thing. I thought, oh, geez. You know. so, <laughs> so I got there. <laughs> I got there the next morning at about uh, 2.30. I'd bought some streamers at the Kmart, strung them across the place. I made a sign uh, with poster board and, and a magic marker. Happy birthday, Agnes. Put it on the mirror behind the counter. I had the place as spruced up as I could, given the time that I had and my limitations. Harry had, and Jane had gotten a word out on the street. By, uh, by 3.15, every prostitute in Honolulu was squeezed into this diner. I mean, it was wall-to-wall prostitutes. I mean, wall-to-wall prostitutes and me. <laughs> uh, 3.30 on the dot, the door opened. In came Agnes and her friends. We had everybody poised. As they came to the door, we yelled, Happy birthday, Agnes, happy birthday. And we all clapped and screamed and cheered. And I've never seen anybody so stunned in my life. Her friends braced her because I could see that her knees were beginning to buckle on the incitement. They got her over and sat her down on the stool. And then we started singing happy birthday. When they brought out the cake with the candles, she lost it and started crying. Harry just stood there with the cake and said, come on, Agnes, knock it off, knock it off. Blow out the candles, blow out the candles. She tried, but she couldn't do it. So he blew out the candles. And then he took a knife and he, he handed it to her and said, now cut the cake, Agnes, come on, cut the cake. She took the knife and then she looked at me, knowing that I was somehow involved in all of this, and said, do I have to cut the cake? I said, it, it's, it's your cake. She said, what I'd like to do is I, I'd like to take the cake home and show it to my mother. Could I do that? I, I said, I, I suppose. She stood up. I said, do you have to do it now? She said, I live two doors down. Let me take the cake, show it to my mother. I promise I'll bring it right back. She picked up the cake and inched her way to the door. Carrying the cake as though it was the holy grail. Mm. And as the door swung shut, there was dead silence. You talk about an awkward moment. <laughs> Everybody was just stunned silence. I didn't know what to do or what to say. So finally I said, What do you say we pray? <laughs> It was weird looking back on it now, a sociologist leading a prayer meeting with a bunch of prostitutes (laughs) in a diner in Honolulu at 3.30 in the morning, but it was the right thing to do. It was memorable. And I prayed that God would deliver her from where she had been and what she had done over the years. I I know how these things start. Somebody messes over a girl when she's 12 or 13 years old. Some dirty guy does that and ruins her self-image for the rest of her life and It's spiraling downhill from there. And I said, Lord, make her new again, because I believe in a God who through Jesus can make all people new again. Old things pass away. All things can become new. And when I finished the prayer, Harry leaned across the table and said, hey, Camp Paulo, you told me you were a sociologist. You're no sociologist. You're a preacher. What kind of church you preach in? And one of those moments when you come up with just the right answer, I said, I, I preach in a church that throws birthday parties for whores at 3.30 in the morning. <laughs> I thought it was a clever answer. But his comeback stunned me. He said, no, you don't. No, you don't. He said, I would join a church like that. I've reflected on it since. I think we'd all like to belong to a church through birthday parties for whores at 3.30 in the morning. Mm -hmm. But the news is that that's the kind of church that Jesus came to create. I don't know where where we got this other one that's half country club. But he came to create a church that would throw parties for people who have no parties. And uh, so that's my story for you today.
0: It's one of our favorite Tony Mm -hmm. stories. We've heard
1: it before, and uh, every time it just gives us chills. You could not have chosen a better one. Because we believe in all of that, too. Good. And and so Good. wish and long for the world, for the church, for the, for the world to be like that. And um, so thank you for reminding us all. Yes. And we hope inspiring us all <laughs> to continue to work for that.
2: You know, it doesn't take much to make a huge difference in this world. Often when I'm speaking at a church, I say something as simply as this. Do you know some shut-ins? Why don't you send to each of the shut-ins you know a, a card saying, I'm thinking of you. I'm praying for you. Uh, why don't you, uh, when you're on a trip, when I'm on a trip, my wife taught me to do this. I'm, I'm in an airport. I buy a couple of uh, uh, postcards and write notes to people who are old or, or sick or shut-ins of one kind or another and say, Dear John or Dear Mary, I'm in Chicago right now, but I was thinking of you, and I thought I'd drop you a note to let you know you're in my heart, you're in my mind, you're in my prayers. Sincerely, Tony. I can't tell you how meaningful that has been to people out there. And I always say to people in the congregation, listen, if you can't take time to write a note, to make a phone call, that'll do, a phone call to somebody who you know would be blessed by a phone call or a card. I, I want to know what your Christianity is all about. I always try to remind people what is written in the book of James. This is true religion, to visit the fatherless and the widows in their affliction and to keep oneself spotless from the world.
0: Tony, we... Uh we know the religious community has often been really good at telling us what to do or what to believe. And how does that add to people's negative perspective or attitudes about organized religion?
2: I always jokingly say, uh, I'm, I don't belong to a, 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 belong to an organized religion. I'm a Baptist, <laughs> you know, <laughs> but, uh, I, I think that the perception of the church is pretty negative. Um, for 10 years, I taught at the University of Pennsylvania. And over and over again, I would hear uh, my Ivy League students say to me, uh, hey, uh, we think Jesus is pretty great. We, we think Jesus is cool. We, we think Jesus is special, but we think the church sucks. That's the image that is often communicated among the collegians and the universities and the colleges across the country. Uh, there's not res- much respect for the institutional church, and that's a shame. Because the institutional church has done a lot of good stuff, let me just break it to you: twenty-five years ago, uh, forty-seven thousand children died every single day because of diseases or uh, because of starvation. They 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 die. Forty-seven thousand children under the age of twelve die because of lack of food. Today, that figure is down to seventeen thousand, and guess who has been responsible? for sponsoring the children uh, through groups like Compassion, International, and World Vision. Guess who has been responsible for uh, helping uh, these children escape from hunger? From 45,000 down to 17,000 in 25 years. We could be doing more. We ought to get it down to zero. But the truth is we've done a lot. 25 years ago, one out of every 12 persons on the planet, excuse me, 25 years ago, one out of every six persons on the planet had no access to clean drinking water. Today, it's one out of 12. The situation has improved 100%. And guess who has done most of the digging of the wells? It's been church groups. You probably know of church groups that have sent teams of men and women into developing countries and dug wells so that people could have clean drinking water instead of the disease water that's in the river. That's the church. 25 years ago, 80% of the population of the planet was illiterate. Today, it's down to 20%. Guess who has done most of the literacy training? Around the world, people that didn't know how to read and write have been taught how to read and write by the church. Uh, The church has done incredible things, setting up clinics, hospitals. The work that the church has done around the world is brilliant and should be acknowledged. And I always say to these students who smile at me and say, the church is full of hypocrites. My response is always the same. That's why you're going to feel at home among us. <laughs> yes. Because <laughs> that's right. We're all hypocrites. And uh, I always say, uh, the ch- I don't know about your church, but my church is full of hypocrites. And we come together every Sunday morning because we're hypocrites who are trying to find the guidance and the strength and the direction to overcome our hypocrisies,
1: it's beautiful. We we agree again, wholeheartedly, um, with an analogy that you've already you've already spoken about. It, it's meals. That birthday party, for example, was, was about meals. And and as you talk about the church helping to feed people and provide means for for people to be able to eat and drink drink healthily and well you know one things that we talk about a lot you know you know from our faith perspective with is that jesus in his earthly ministry spent so much time either eating meals with people or going to meals with people or providing the meals for people Um, can you talk more about that too what is the what is the magic of sharing meals together, sharing a birthday cake together um, that that can transform people?
2: I don't know, but soci- sociolo- you know, sociologists yeah. uh, put a great emphasis on table talk. If you're Lutheran, any of your listeners are Lutheran, uh, most of Luther's writings are in, incorporated in a set of books called Table Talk. The thing that that the students of Martin Luther back uh, in the days of Reformation, the things that they remember are the things that he said to them while they were uh, eating. And in the scriptures, how many times does it say, uh, and when they were seated to, uh, down to eat, uh, he taught them. Over and over again, people remember what happens at the dinner table. Uh, I studied under a sociologist when I was doing my Ph.D. work, by the name of James H.S. Bossard. And Dr. Bossard uh, uh, put an emphasis on the socialization of children and says in socializing children, there probably isn't anything more important than the conversation that goes on at the dinner table. The conversation, the give and take around the dinner table. Children remember what is said at the dinner table. He's pointed this out empirically. Uh, more than anything else, If if you sit a kid down and lecture him or her, uh, the message very seldom gets through. But what gets exchanged in the congeniality of a, of a dinner is, is remembered. And uh, it's, it's interesting that uh, Jesus uh, concludes his ministry, in a sense, with a dinner in the upper room. And uh, then he, in fact, uh, says this. Eat, drink. For we won't feast together like this until we feast together mm. in the kingdom. Whoa, what an important line. I wrote a book called The Kingdom of God is a Party. And it's really ba- built around that particular story. Uh, heaven is a, uh, whatever that is, and I don't know what the afterlife is all about. I, I just believe in it. But I, I, don't, I don't find myself able to picture it. But I do know this that there will be something likened unto a gigantic party, a gigantic feast. The first miracle that Jesus ever performed was at a wedding feast. I mean, just go through the Scripture and see how many times he's feasting. As a matter of fact, they, they criticized him, and they said, this man's no man of God, the Pharisees really took after him. And the Sadducees really took after him and said, he's not a man of God. Look, every time we look at him, he's eating, he's drinking. He's nothing but a blind, a, a, a wine. That's one of my favorite, favorite glutton. scripture passages. Well, <laughs> what an image of Jesus.
0: <laughs>
2: <laughs> yeah, a wine pepper and a glutton. I mean, you know, I often say, you know who had a lousy testimony in Jerusalem? Jesus. <laughs> they always said, oh, every time you look at him, he's eating and drinking with And you know what's worse? He's not even fussy who he eats with. He eats with prostitutes. He eats with sinners. He eats with tax collectors. If he's a man of God, uh, what's he doing eating with those people? But that's Jesus. He invites you to the feast. We kind of
0: feel like we're in a, a pretty controversial and contentious time in our world. And what do you see as being some of the most prominent or most troublesome issues of our time?
2: Well, I think the thing that's most troublesome is that Christians have got to learn to live like Christians. Um, I mean, I'm worried about what's happening in America, as I'm sure you are. Uh, The Republicans not only voted against uh, Hillary Clinton, but Christian Republicans end up saying, I despise the woman. I hate her. Now I'm listening to Democrats who are saying, I hate Donald Trump. It's one thing to oppose somebody politically, to disagree on issues, but to hate? Yeah, they're the enemy. And Jesus said, well, if they're the enemy, then love your enemy. Overcome evil with good. You say, but I mean, when I listen to that guy on television, it's like getting a slap in the face. Jesus says, would you just turn the other cheek? Uh, Jesus calls upon us not to agree, uh, not to support people who differ with us on issues, but to learn to somehow look beyond the issues and see a person, a person who needs to be loved. If there's anything I sense about Donald Trump is his need to be loved. Whether you're a Democrat or Republican, you would have to say, every time he speaks, he always seems to be saying, it's about me. It's about me. Look what I've done. Look how wonderful I am. And people get, get irritated and they begin calling him an egomaniac. Can't we see beyond that? Here's a guy who's made a lot of money. And he's not quite sure whether people are friends because he's rich or because they care about him. Here's a guy that needs to be loved. And I think if you're one of those anti-Trump people, you need to get down on your knees and ask God to forgive you and to give you the capacity to love for him and to do what it says uh, in the book of Timothy, to pray for those who are your leaders. And for the uh, Republicans who are listening to me, you need to do the same thing about Hillary Clinton. I am tired of people saying what they do about Hillary Clinton. I, find, I know her personally personally. And I know her to be a person, and this will shock some people, who reads the Bible every day, prays every day, and looks for God's leading. You say, well, I can't see it in her. Well, whatever you can or can't see. Realize this, people. The way you see people and the way God sees people often are very, very different. Man looketh on the outward appearance, says the scripture. God looks on the heart. And there are a lot of broken hearts out there. And we need to start looking at people with broken hearts. Tony, on with that compassion. point,
0: another famous preacher, Billy Graham, who we would imagine you probably had a chance to meet at some point. He's famous for having said, Yes. he's famous mm-hmm. for having said, is the Holy yes, Spirit's job to convict, God's job to judge, and my job to love. What do you say about that?
2: Yeah, Amen. Well, that's perfect. Uh, I've heard him say almost the same thing, except for one little variant. He's, you know, when uh, when they asked him, uh, "Why? What do you say about other religions?" He said almost the same thing. He said, "Well, uh, it's God's. It's, it's my job to preach the gospel. It's the Holy Spirit's responsibility to convict." And it's God the Father's responsibility to judge. I'm going to go on preaching. I'm going to go on testifying. I'm going to go on telling people about Jesus. And I'm not going to go around judging anybody, even yeah. if they're from other religions. And,
1: and, and Tony, you have, um, you've not really shied away from addressing controversial issues. And um, you know, you've know you taken stands on topics and, and issues that, that some would consider divisive and, and contentious. Uh, can you tell us you tell us why you don't shy away, why it is important to you um, to speak out on, on things? And if you want to give some examples, yeah.
2: uh, please do. Well, yeah, well, I think your listeners, uh, if they're evangelicals, they're probably saying, why are you interviewing Tony Campolo? Uh, don't you know that he has come out in support of gays and lesbians and transgendered and bisexual people, don't you know that he actually uh, put out a statement as to why he no longer condemns gay marriage? And uh, let me just say, the minute I came out and said, uh, these are God's children and we must love them, I mean, we love them, but we don't think they ought to have the right to do this and the right to do that, and the response is always the same. Justice is simply love translated into social policy. You can't say to somebody, I love you in the name of Jesus, and then turn around and say, you're not entitled to the same rights that I enjoy. You're not entitled to the same freedoms that I experience. Uh, I'm free of discrimination, but we have a right to discriminate against you. I, I, I got this to say. Uh, I can continue to get involved in controversial issues. And, uh, and the more you get involved in controversy, uh, the more the more you lose friends, the more you uh, alienate people who you want to be part of your fellowship. Um, uh, Nothing has alienated me more from the evangelical community than my caring for gay and lesbian, transgender and bisexual people. Nothing I've ever said or done has uh, upset the evangelical community more than that. Uh, And my point is... uh, I'm not going to judge gay and lesbian people and I'm tired of the church making judgment. But we're judging them because we we feel that we need to judge them. Judge them all you want, but remember you're following a Jesus that says judge not that you be not judged. And uh, uh, the fact is that we're losing a whole generation of young people because every sociological study I've ever seen on the subject says there's a time divide. People over the age of 30 feel one way about gays and lesbians. People under the age of 30 uh, feel another way. And uh, it's only a matter of time before they take over. The pendulum is swinging. And you say, yeah, we don't just go with the flow of history. I don't either. But let me just say, the minute you begin to look into people's eyes and feel that Jesus is staring back at you, it will be hard for you to discriminate, to be mean, to be judgmental to look into a person's eyes and sense that Jesus is staring back at you. That will change your attitude to anybody, no matter who he is or who she is and where she's been. Uh, Just two days ago, and one of the reasons why I had a little trouble getting on uh, this morning with you uh, is that uh, I had taken a rather exhausting trip to a prominent Christian leader who has been been, uh, arrested and is in prison now, probably for the rest of his life, for being a pedophile. And man, when he was riding high, everybody wanted to be his friend. Everybody wanted to be in his programs. I mean, he was big time stuff. And now I, I went to see him and it was an exhausting trip. And uh, I said, who else has visited you? He said, well, uh, in the last two years, I, I had one other visit. I'm saying, Wow. And Jesus said, you know what a Christian is? I was in prison. Did you visit me? I was in prison. Did you visit me? Read that in the 25th chapter of Matthew. We all talk about, I was hungry and you fed me. Naked, did you clothe me? Sick, did you care for me? But how many of us have visited people who have disgraced themselves because of what they've done and are in prison? Do we go and visit them? And can we look into their eyes and sense Jesus is staring back at us? I got to tell you, I felt Jesus in this man. He's led several of these other other inmates to Christ. He has a Bible study and a worship service. He leads singing uh, for a hymn sing once a week. I mean, the guy's had an incredible ministry. He hasn't given up on Jesus, and even though the church has given up on him. So... Uh, these are some of the things we need to remember. But I, I, I don't mean to be controversial. I just have this to say. Whenever you draw a line, and the church often does this, and pushes certain people on the other side of that line, you can be sure of one thing. Jesus is on the other side of the line, standing with them.
1: We've, we've been asked um, you know, more than once by people, would you meet with anyone, you know, in the work that we do, the listening work, the supportive, encouraging work that we that we try to do. And and there was a sense of we we should be drawing some lines as to who we see, who we listen to, who we support. And, you know, we we find that question or that attitude troubling because we, we yeah, yeah, we will meet with anyone. We will listen because we believe that everyone has a story that's important it needs to be heard and everyone needs to be, to be valued and to know that they matter. And, and so, you know, we, we want to affirm what you're saying and we, we believe it too. First of all, there's that. And and secondly, you know, we, 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 and, and you all live in Pennsylvania and we know that within the last decade, there's been a, Certainly a, a tremendous uh, controversy over, again, an issue of, uh, of child, um, child sexual abuse. And, you know, here in Pennsylvania, one of the biggest uh, stories was about Jerry Sandusky and, and uh, Penn State and, and what Mr. Sandusky was accused and, and convicted of doing. Uh, we knew Jerry, we know uh, Jerry Sandusky's former pastor, now, the pastor who was um, you know, at the church that, that Jerry belonged to and was part of when he was arrested and, and convicted and sent to prison. And and his pastor went to visit him following the same scripture that you mentioned in Matthew 25. And uh, when I was in prison, you visited me. And he got some criticism for that. And there were, there were people who questioned him, why? Why would you visit this horrible man in, in, in prison, well, simply because of what you just said. To
2: uh, remember this line, uh, a graduate of Eastern University, where I've taught most of my life, Eastern University here in St. David's, Pennsylvania, had a student some years ago that's become world famous, Brian Stevenson. A major motion picture is coming out about him by the end of the year, so we'll look out for it. It'll be in theaters all over the all over the world. But uh, Brian um, defends people on who are uh, in prison on death row he's gotten 128 people off of death row to date that i know of he's an amazing amazing servant of god but he always says this everybody is much better than the worst thing he has done that's important that's important i remember when jim baker When Jim Baker went down the tubes, remember Jimmy Swaggart, the older people here will remember those catastrophes. And I was at a minister's meeting, and uh, the guy that introduced me said, we're here to listen to Tony Campolo, and we're so glad he's here. He's not like uh, Jim Baker. Um, uh, We need to distance ourselves from people like Jim Baker, and he went on like that. When I got up to speak, I said, you know, uh, I'm not about to distance myself from Jim Baker. As a matter of fact, uh, uh, when a Christian brother falls, this is the time to embrace them and to love them and to say, he's my brother. Distancing ourselves from people who have done terrible things is exactly what Jesus refused to do. Uh, There's nothing that anybody has done in time in history that measures up to crucifying Jesus. And from the cross, he says, forgive them, Lord. They know not what they do. And uh, the, the name of the game is, if we can't be forgiving, what is this Christianity is all about? And I said to this group of ministers, the only difference between Jim Baker and the rest of us here is that they haven't found out about our secrets. And all of us have dirty secrets. Don't say that you don't. Nobody said a beep because everybody does have terrible secrets. And uh, we ask God's forgiveness.
0: We've used this phrase before when somebody will ask, are you a follower of Jesus? And I'll say yes on a good day. (laughs) That's good. That's good. That's good. That's good. Yeah. Yeah. Tony, we we have some statistics for you that 41% of Americans say that their spiritual life is entirely private and only 33% say their spiritual life has impact on their
2: community. What would you say to that? I think it says something about the failure of the church, uh, because uh, we have preachers in the church that uh, deal with Christianity in totally private terms, and uh, uh, we have Christian leaders who say that's the way it should be. I think of one of the most prominent Christian leaders of our time, uh, Jerry Falwell Jr., um, Liberty University, a great university, with doing wonderful things for God and for the kingdom. So I don't want to disparage everything that this guy has done. But when he speaks, he says, well, when I read the Bible, and when I think of the teachings of Jesus, it relates to my uh, private life, not to my political life. Well, that bothers me because I am one who says that Jesus Christ should be Lord of all, Lord of all. Lord of everything, there should be no area of life where Jesus' will is not done. Uh, we pray the Lord's Prayer, thy will be done on earth. We are called to go into all the world, not part of it, every sector of society. we to invade it with the presence of Jesus. Right now, this country is suffering because people have allowed political identity to bar them from doing what Jesus would have them do. I I really worry about our whole country that has made Christianity a kind of private thing. Uh, Jesus said, the, uh, the Bible says, for God so loved, here's the word, the world. And the word there in the original language, which you probably know, for God so loved the cosmos, that's the Greek word. That means everything that's in the world, everything about the world. It says in Ephesians, we are to wrestle not only against flesh and blood, Ephesians 6.12. Not only against flesh and blood. We, you know, It's one thing to preach about the sins of the flesh. Man, we all have them. But we also must recognize that we are called upon to wrestle with the principalities and the powers and the rulers of darkness, the rulers of this age. Check out Scripture. Uh, it says in the uh, first chapter of Ephesians, all principalities, all powers, that means all social institutions, political institutions, educational institutions, the media, everything in the world, all principalities and powers were created by him and for him. But they're fallen. They're fallen principalities and powers, and they need redemption. And it says this at the end of the first chapter of Ephesians. And he calls upon us to bring into submission all principalities, all powers. All dominions, all thrones, and here's the last line, through the church. It's the church's job to invade all the principalities and powers and bring them into submission to our Lord, not through the use of force. Whenever I hear Christians saying we've got to take over the government and we've got to make America Christian again. No, we don't take over the government. We preach the love of Jesus and we let the Holy Spirit do his slash her work in the world. That's what we do. Um, Not by might, not by the sword, but by love. Uh, Jesus came to change the world through people like you and people like me. And he said, go out there and stand for love and justice. If you go through the scriptures, you'll find that the word justice is mentioned almost as many times as the word love. These two go together. Justice is social. Love is personal. We are called to be both social and personal.
0: Tony, on that note, we'd love to ask you a question that actually Shane Claiborne years ago when we were on your podcast, he had asked us a question and we'd like to ask it back of you. What about uh, in situations where people make unhealthy decisions or unethical decisions? What should be our
2: role in those moments? To love your neighbor as you love yourself. (laughs) Namely, when people make unethical and moral decisions, be aware that you made make unethical and immoral decisions. And, uh, you know, love your enemy as you love yourself. I I just talked about this the other day. Love your neighbor as you love yourself. Uh, Well, that's important. Uh, When you make bad decisions, when you make immoral decisions. What do you do? Do you end up hating yourself? Well, if you do, you're making a mistake. You're supposed to repent, ask Jesus to cleanse you, and try to make things right. But hating yourself gets you nowhere. If you love your neighbor as much as you love yourself, and you hate yourself, your neighbor's in trouble. So uh, we are to treat ourselves and as we would want to treat our neighbors and we must treat our neighbors as we ourselves would like to be treated we all make immoral and stupid decisions in life we all do i was uh, i was in ocean city next uh, uh, a couple of years ago uh, and i think this is the first time i've ever told this story and i went into the men's room uh, down at the ocean city pier you know the where the concerts are went into the men's room closed the door of the, of the john And all kinds of obscene things were written. You know, you've been to men's room where they write obscene things all over it.
1: (laughs) We've seen a few of those. Yes. Yes. And
2: somebody had written on the inside of this uh, little cubbyhole for the toilet. Somebody had written, Judas, come home. All has been forgiven. And I thought, wow, wow, that's it. Judas come home. All has been forgiven. You know, if Jesus, Jesus, Judas hadn't uh, committed suicide, I have a feeling that the first thing that the resurrected Jesus would have done would have been to go to Judas and say, "I love you, and you're forgiven." Wow,
1: it's powerful. Yesterday, in the New York Times, the um, Commentator, author uh, Nicholas Kristoff uh, wrote something entitled "Let's Wage a War on Loneliness." Mm. We, that <laughs> that title caught our eye immediately, and and what Kristoff wrote was was brilliant. In fact, he was speaking to a message that we tell all the time when in, in our writing, in our in our preaching, in our speaking. To, to to groups to organizations that loneliness is one of the pervading problems of our time. And when you talk about suicide, when you talk about, you know, just again, we, we talk about the disconnection that that, that people have. And and um, one of the things that that Christoph wrote in this commentary was this. He, he said, wrote, I've I've become a I've been become interested in loneliness while reporting on the opioid epidemic and soaring suicide rates in the United States. These have complicated roots, partly economic, but they also result from social isolation. Extended families have dissolved and social institutions like the churches, bowling leagues and neighborhood clubs have frayed. We are no longer so deeply embedded in our communities. We thought it was very powerful. I mean, he, he went on to say so many other powerful things as well. What would you say to that? And can you speak to this when we call, and what so many are calling now, the epidemic of loneliness that has that pervades our 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 country and really so much of the world.
2: Earlier in our time together on this uh, interview, you I mentioned uh, the book the book of James and the verse. that says. This is true religion, to visit the fatherless and the widows in their affliction, which is loneliness, and to keep oneself spotless from the world. But I'm a sociologist, and one of the most important books in contemporary sociology uh, was written by David Reisman. It's entitled The Lonely Crowd, and he talked about the way in which uh, people live uh, with people all around them. And yet they feel cut off from them, alienated. Uh, Jean-Paul Sartre, the French existentialist atheist, said, hell is other people. Nothing is more lonely than the person who is surrounded by people and he he doesn't feel he can emotionally connect with them. Uh, They're children and parents who cannot connect with each other. They're in the same room. They talk at each other not with each other. They don't listen, uh, to listen with all the intensity that one can muster, to look into a person's eyes and feel your way into another person's soul. People don't do that. We talk superficially. Uh, T.S. Eliot, the the, uh, poet, uh, laureate of England years ago, uh, wrote the poem, The Wasteland. And there's a couplet in that poem that goes like this. Ladies at tea, come and go. Speaking of Michelangelo, they have these uh, little tea parties, and they uh, you talk about art and music, and they don't connect with each other. Um, the idea that uh, uh, we're alone even when we're with other people, um, that is David Reisman's big point. And that's because in the society in which we live, we have learned how to be con artists. We have learned how to present an image of ourselves to manipulate people into liking us. I say to my students, for instance, when you start dating, what do you do? You try to get a read on this girl and figure out what kind of guy she would like. And then you pretend to be that guy. Uh, You're you're conning her. And then I say to my students at Eastern, "Uh, don't feel guilty. Because not only are you conning her, but in all probability, she's conning you. Uh, There's a sociologist (laughs) by the name of Irving Goffman that talked about the presentation of self in everyday life. All of us are are saying uh, to the group with, "What, what kind of person would this individual like? What should I say to impress this person? And we put out this image of self and the real self lies behind these images alone totally alone why do you think we do that why do you think we do that because we're trying to engineer acceptance we're trying to engineer uh, acceptance one of the things that was great about the old rural community is you couldn't con anybody because people knew who you were in that small town in that small village in today's world we we are all trying to impress people Uh, because we want to be loved. I think that's the word that I I would lay out there more than anything else. We all want to be loved. I I said earlier on the program that uh, I pray for Donald Trump regularly. Um, And I I do so for an important reason. When I listen to him speak, and it's so much about I, I, me, me, I realize that what this guy wants more than anything is for people to love him. And I I know that uh, there are ministers that go and visit him. But I wonder whether they express love towards him or whether they are trying to impress him about themselves. I don't know. I don't judge. I'm just saying that's a possibility. That could happen. But I think we all want to be loved. We all want to be accepted. And so instead of presenting ourselves as we really are, we put on this pretense. And we're able to... I want to pull it off for a very simple reason. Every time we change activities, we change groups. There's one group of people I go to school with here at Eastern. There's another group of people I, I, I was with when I was teaching at the University of Pennsylvania at the same time. And then I would go out in a church. I mean, I, at Eastern, I'm Tony. I go to the University of Pennsylvania, and I become Dr. Campolo. I go out to speak at a church, and I become Reverend Campolo. And then at the end of the day, I look in the mirror and I ask, will the real Tony Campolo please step forward? Because the truth is, I put on a facade in order to impress people, and I know that that isolates me more and more and more. We need what Martin Buber, the Jewish Hasidic philosopher, called i vow relationships. We need to enter into sacred encounters instead of looking at the other people as objects, as things, as its. He talks about those who have I-it relationships and thy thou relationships. When I'm dealing with a person that I'm treating as a thing, I try to impress that person. When I enter into spiritual oneness with that person, all that goes away. The 13th chapter of Corinthians says it brilliantly for every sociologist. It says this, listen, and we look at each other. How? As though through a glass darkly. Whoa, is that dramatic? We don't really see each other clearly. We look at each other through a glass darkly. But by the grace of God and the power of the Holy Spirit, we're able to break through that facade. And the love of God, which is the first of the fruits of the Holy Spirit, love. But when we love, we don't look at each other as though through a glass darkly. But face to face. Then I shall know the other. Read that 13th chapter of, of Corinthians. Then I will know the other person, even as also I am known. What a brilliant sociological analysis. But what else would you expect going to the Bible?
1: There's a, as, you're, as you're talking, there's, there's a story that, that came to our mind, one that we have written about, one that we've shared and, and told. And I just want to share it with you right now and to, and to our listeners and if, in case they've never heard it before. Um, back well, in the last century, uh, in the early part of the last century, when the, the, the film actor Charlie Chaplin was at his heyday uh, apparently there were a lot of, I mean, you know, he was just so popular, wildly popular, and there happened to be a, a lot of Charlie Chaplin lookalike contests oh, yeah. around the country, around the United States that happened. And, and one day, uh Chaplin was somewhere in, in the country, I think the Midwest, where there was a, a, a Charlie Chaplin uh, lookalike contest going on. And he actually entered it. <laughs> And, and got up on the stage, and the judges, who, whomever, however it was judged, judged him um, in 12th place. <laughs> he came in, Charlie Chaplin himself came in 12th place in his own lookalike contest. And the people, the, the whole point of this story was that the people didn't know the real thing, the real Charlie Chaplin, when they saw him wow and it's to the point of what you're, we believe to what you're talking about yeah that's that, brilliant. that for all of us they don't know the real tony yeah they don't know the real tom they don't know the real michael they don't know the real any of us um when they see us you can use that story i'm tony, going but to you just have to that's, quote that's, us that's <laughs> true I, I all kinds of
2: ways that story can be used already um
1: yeah and we, we and we've used it because we just we thought it was brilliant yeah. and then when we're trying to be the, the what we say the real thing when when we that 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 yeah you and you're right that we often are not and 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 that really is our goal to be the real people we have been created to be and are uh, with others
2: let me remind your listeners that the first thing you need to do according to Socrates the ancient greek philosopher know thyself know thyself most people don't want to take a good look at themselves because they're afraid of what they will see here's the good news when you see yourself as jesus sees you you won't hate looking at yourself all your flaws all your shortcomings all your warts he sees beyond them and sees something so precious that he's willing to die to keep it alive. That's what he did on Calvary's Cross. He saw us for who we are and what we are. And most of us are w- unwilling to face up to who we really are and what we really are. But that's the beginning. You can't relate to other people until you know who you are. I'll give you one more story because I, I sense our time's running short. But Albert Einstein was on a train heading out of Princeton Junction north. Uh, and the conductor came down the aisle of the train, and uh, Einstein was reaching through his pockets, looking through his uh, briefcase for his ticket, and the conductor said, don't worry, don't worry, Dr. Einstein, don't worry about your ticket, I know who you are, I know who you are. 20 minutes later, the same conductor is coming down the aisle, and he sees Einstein still looking for his ticket, feeling around behind the the. Uh, uh, seat and uh, in his briefcase, and he said, "Doctor Einstein." I said, "Don't worry about the ticket. We know who you are." As the story goes, Einstein stood up, and looked at this guy in the face and said, "Young man, I know who I am. <laughs> I want to know where I'm going." Yeah, it's a yeah. Great story. It's a good story. They're the two questions that we all have to answer: Who am I, and where am I going? And that's why I'm into Jesus. He helps me understand who I am. And more and more, he is able to define where I'm going in life. There was a whole movement we've started with young men and young women around the world. It's picked up a lot of momentum. It's called Red Letter Christians. You can go to the website, redletterchristians.org and check it out. And it's people who say, I want to follow Those red letters of the Bible. You know, the old Bibles had the words of Jesus highlighted in red. Are you willing to do what those red letters tell us to do? You know, we've all been good Christians in that we accept the doctrines of the Apostle Paul. Paul gives us doctrines. If you're looking for the verse, the just shall live by faith, it's in Paul. If you're looking for, uh, we're saved by grace through faith, not of works lest any man should boast, it's in Paul. But when we're talking about a lifestyle, a lifestyle of honesty, of an end of phoniness, of openness to other people. If you're looking for a lifestyle, you've got to go to the red letters of the Bible. Those old Bibles that had the words of Jesus highlighted in red letters. That's what we need to do. We need to be faithful. And Jesus said this, you're my disciples if you do whatsoever I command you. It's good to end the program together (laughs) with controversy.
1: Yeah.
2: Jesus says, love your enemies. And one of my uh, one of my close associates, uh, Shane Glaiborne, who works with me in the Red Letter Christians movement, says when Jesus said, love your enemies, he probably mm-hmm. meant we shouldn't kill them. <laughs> what does that say to all those people in Lancaster County, their Mennonites and, and Amish? They're, they're saying, amen, amen. It's, it's turning away from violence. Uh, Do good to those who would hurt you. Overcome evil with good. You say, well, I tithe. Isn't that enough? No, it's not. And Jesus said, sow whatsoever you have and give it to the poor and take up the cross and follow me. Uh, Jesus was not into tithing. Uh, Or else we'd have to rewrite the hymn book. I can just hear us singing, one-tenth to Jesus, I surrender. One-tenth to him I gladly give. All together on the chorus, I surrender one-tenth. Or is Dietrich Bonhoeffer right when he says, when Jesus calls a person, He calls that person to come and die. That's our Jesus. That's his discipleship. It's controversial. It's hard. It was so hard that the disciples said, when you talk like that, Jesus, who then can be saved? And he said, it sounds impossible, doesn't it? But with God's help, it becomes possible. Uh, Read uh, the uh, book of Mark, the uh, 10th chapter. Uh, Read it in Luke uh, and you'll find that that's what he says.
0: As you mentioned, we're probably going to have to start wrapping things up, but we, we wanted to ask you two questions. What specific goal would you like to achieve by the end of your life? And when your life is over, what do you hope people will say about you?
2: When I was 40 years old, and in February I'll be 85, so that was a long time ago, I actually sat down with my three closest friends, And we each asked ourselves that question and talked about it for a whole day. And I decided that when I hang up my sneakers at the end, I want to be able to look back and know that there are about 100, maybe 150, maybe more than that. People who went into the mission field, who went into the pastorate, who went into the service of the church because I helped them along the way in that direction. All of us are called to be ministers. But I do think that missionaries and pastors are special people. And uh, I like to count my life in terms of the number of pastors and missionaries I've been able to urge in the direction of, of service. Uh, there, we get a lot of letters in our office as you can well imagine but I've got to tell you, we now are keeping a file on those who write to me and say, dear Dr. Campolo, um, I thought I'd write to you because you must be getting up in years. And they're right about that. Uh, and uh, they, they say, but many years ago at the Creation Festival or many years ago you were speaking in my church or many years ago I was at a youth conference and what you said and how you called us to make decisions proved to be turning points in my life. And and I'm in the ministry today. I'm on the mission field today. I'm serving as a Christian education director today because of your challenges. Uh, that's, That's what I hope people will remember about me, that I challenged a lot of people into the ministry of the church. I believe in the church. I really believe in the church. You say, well, our church is full of, let me just say, The church is the body of Christ for all of its shortcomings and all of its flaws. It's the bride of Christ. It needs to clean itself up for the wedding, but it's the bride of Christ even now.
1: Tony, thank you so much for joining us today, for sharing so many wonderful, powerful stories, for sharing your faith, which we know motivates and inspires you to do everything that you do. And we thank you for your legacy, for your, uh, your inspiration, and, and for your love, which we, we see pervades um, in, in, in so many ways. And uh, we're very grateful that you joined us today.
2: Thank you. Thank you for having me, and thank you for your ministry. And let me do one more shout-out for Eastern University. (laughs) We want students to come and study with me and, and with my colleagues. I love the students who come from all over the country to study at Eastern University. We're a great evangelical school and we want to do our job better and better as the years go by. Thanks for having me on your show.
1: You're very welcome. It was our privilege.
0: we hope you loved that episode as much as we did. That's one of those that I know we'll probably go back and listen to multiple times together. Tony challenged all of us, especially those of us who are religious to reach out to people, uh, to, to foster deeper connections and deeper relationships, to not project our religious views uh, without first listening and hopefully drawing uh, connection that we could enter into a relationship where people wanna hear what we have to say. So one of our board members recently introduced us to a program called Patreon. And Patreon is a way that we can grow our funding stream to help us support the work of Someone To Tell To, especially this podcast series. So you can do us a huge favor by going to www.patreon.com someone to tell it to and make a donation anywhere from a dollar an episode uh, to as much as, as you're comfortable with. That helps support our work, so we do appreciate it.
1: We're very grateful for your support. We're very grateful for you listening. We thank you because we hope that together we can spread a message about listening well, with compassion and with intention all around the world. So thank you until we listen again.